Well, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, very pleasing to be back. I thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's good to be back with the people of God and to be able once again to open the Word of God to you and to share uh, what God has in His Word for us. What I'd like to ask you to do today is to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and we'll be looking particularly at verses 23 and 24. And we'll be looking in that passage of Scripture to see how that God over and over again emphasizes the fact that whatever man may have by way of his own greatness, whatever man may have by way of his own significance, whatever man may have by way of his own glory, Man is not to glory or to boast in that, but rather you and I, particularly as the people of God, are to find our boast in God himself. What I hope to do is to open up this passage of scripture for you in such a way as to, as we did the last time, to take a look at the context of the passage, to see why this passage is where it's at, to see what God is communicating to us. And what I really hope to do for you this morning is to distill this passage of scripture and to set before you what I believe is its primary teaching, its primary proposition, which is essentially this, that the people of God are to boast or to glory in that in which God delights. The people of God are to glory or to boast in that in which God delights. Why do I say that I believe that this is the major way in which this passage is to be understood? Well, let's take a look at the passage. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Notice here. There are those things that God delights in. And what God says to us very specifically is this, that our boast and our glory is to be in that very thing that God delights in. Now, it's right and proper for us to say that we find our boast in God. The scriptures say this very clearly. It's right and proper to say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's also right to say from this passage of Scripture that if we can identify those things that God delights in, those are the very things that we are to glory in. So what I want to do this morning is I want to set before you this this proposition, this doctrine, this idea, along the following two-point outline. In this passage of Scripture, I want you to see how that God gives us a word of warning. And secondly, how God gives us a word of counsel. The word of warning is this, let not man boast in man, essentially. And the word of counsel is this, but let every man boast in God himself, or, as I've said, the things that God delights in. So what I want to do then is I want to bring to you this passage of Scripture. Well, I think one of the things that we need to be aware of, anytime we are looking in in the Old Testament, there are those passages that, in many ways, leap off of the page for us. Jeremiah Chapter 9 is one of those passages. We read it already twice this morning in the New Testament. We saw how that the Apostle Paul takes this passage of Scripture and in a sense uses it as a a general rule of direction. That whenever there is the preaching of the gospel, the gospel is to be preached in such a way so that man will not glory in man. 
Whenever there is anything that is to be done, at the end of the day, it's to be done in such a way as to where we would not boast in ourselves, but give glory to God. So there's a sense in which this passage of Scripture is incorporated in the rest of the Scripture by way of a general principle or general rule. But what we should be aware of, as with all of our Old Testament passages, and particularly those ones that jump off the page at us, it's very interesting that in the next chapter in Jeremiah, there's another very well-known passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that we oftentimes quote. I think sometimes we quote it without being fully aware of the context. And you know that passage of Scripture in Jeremiah 10, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper. You remember that passage of Scripture? What's interesting about that passage of Scripture, you may be aware of or you may not be aware of, is that that passage of Scripture is spoken to a people who are about to go into captivity by way of God's chastening hand. And there's a sense in which as God is sending them out under chastisement, he is reminding them that even under divine chastening, his purposes are are for their good and not for their destruction. He is reminding them that though they may be suffering a while for their sin, yet God will bring them back and restore them. And so the passage of scriptures is wonderful to consider in and of itself, but we fill out some of the details when we understand when that was spoken. Stop and think, if we can go through those times of divine chastening with the awareness that God's purposes for us in the chastening are good, God's purposes for us are to or restore or to restore us and not to destroy us. How much more that fills out that passage of scripture? Well, this passage of scripture in Jeremiah nine is the same way. This passage of scripture, as well, is written within the context of the of the of the coming judgment of God upon the sin of the people. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we see in this prophecy of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah was raised up and commissioned specifically to go to a people who were steadfast in their sin, to a people who had rejected the overtures of love that God had made toward them, to a people who had rejected the covenant that they had entered into with God and that God had graciously entered into with them. And so God raises up Jeremiah. He calls him, again, he calls him to to go and to preach uh, God's word to them. As a matter of fact, we could probably develop something of the pattern that we see uh, in the early part of Jeremiah before we get to Jeremiah 9 where what God is doing is he is commissioning uh, Jeremiah. He is saying to Jeremiah, expose or reveal to the people their sin. He is making sincere overtures to the people to repent of their sin. And very surprisingly, what we see in the earlier part of Jeremiah is that the people of God voice a certain type of repentance. It's really something to see. Let me just give you some passages of scripture here. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have set thee this day over nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. That's Jeremiah's primary commission. But his primary commission becomes somewhat more narrow as we go to verses 15 and 19. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come and set every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods. You see the, you see the, the issue, as it were, the, the, the point of controversy between God and his people. 
Verse 17, Thou therefore gird up thy loins, arise, and speak unto them that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, an iron pillar, a brazen walls against the whole land, and against the kings of Judah, and against the princes thereof, and against the priests thereof, and against the people of their land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. So here we have specifically now the narrowing of Jeremiah's commission. Jeremiah's commission was to the nation. And it was to, if I can put it this way, it was to the heads of the nation. If you look in that, in, the, in that 19th verse, I believe it is, what you see is religious leaders, political leaders, social leaders. These are the ones that Jeremiah was to speak the word of God to. And so Jeremiah did. And when Jeremiah spoke the word of God, it's a wonderful thing to see. He spoke the word of God in such a way as that where he conveyed to the people the very pleadings of God with his people. It's amazing to see this. We see this in the prophet Isaiah as well. Many of you know that passage of scripture. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God is pleading with the people. God is coming, if I can put it this way, to the level of his people. And he is saying, look, let us, let us reason together. You know your sins are as scarlet. I will make them white as snow. And in, the, in much the same way, we see God pleading with his people in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord. Now listen to what God says here. Thus saith the Lord. What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and become vain? And so what we see here is that God is pleading. Where, what fault have you found in me, God is saying? You've turned your back on me, but for what reason? What have I done to cause, your, to cause you to, to leave me behind? And there's a sense in which, isn't it wonderful to see that God, when he deals with his people in their sin, he deals with them in such compassionate ways. Now we know that there are times when God speaks very loudly in the calamities that befall humanity. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. I remember, I think it was Thomas Vincent that had that uh, uh, book uh, written back in the 1600s during the fire of, uh, of, of, uh, of London, the great fire of London, uh, God's terrible voice in the city. And I think the way he opened that, uh, that book up was along these lines. I may not be exactly correct here, but it was along these lines that God preached a sermon that day in London. And there are times when God speaks in that kind of a fashion, doesn't he? But there are other times when God makes tender overtures to our souls. And this is what we see happening here. God is pleading with his people. What iniquity have you found in me? And so what we see here is that God is calling the people to a repentance. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 and 14. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep my anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity. That thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under, uh, under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take I will take you of a, of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. You see again God's overtures and what God is asking, what God is calling for, what God is pleading for. You know there are times when God demands repentance, are there or not? There are times when he says it in the most sternest, in, in the most sternest ways. There are other times when he, when he compassionately calls for repentance. And that's what we see happening here. So God is seeking for true repentance on the heart of his people. 
And again, to follow this, 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 this progress in Jeremiah, it's an amazing thing to see. Because we see something that we would think the people, they got it. They, they got the message. Listen, we would think. Listen, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 23 and 25. Um, Return, ye backsliding children, and I will hear your, heal your backslidings. Behold, we come, listen to this, behold, we come unto thee, for thou art our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord God is the salvation of Israel. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And we might think, well, this is it. The message was preached. The message was heard. The message was heeded. We think, Jeremiah, what a wonderful ministry you've had. But what's, what's unsettling is this. God sees their repentance as shallow and ineffective and only touching the surface. Listen, look at, verse, look at chapter 4, verses 1. If thou re- chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If thou return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not remove. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth and judgment and righteousness and the nation shall bless themselves in him and they shall glory for thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah break up your fellow ground and sow not among the thorns circumcise yourselves on the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart ye men of Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none quench it because of the evil of your doings. Chapter 4 following on chapter 3. The people said we've sinned and we've repented. And God says, you know what? You've not repented. Break up your fellow ground. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart. And isn't it somewhat... Have you ever said before God, I'm not sinning. But has the word of God revealed to you that you are sinning. You see, God knows the heart. Would the God that we would repent, would the God that our, that our confession would be, again, as it says, when we read in Jeremiah 3 there, we think, well, this is it, repentance. It's, 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 it's exactly what was called for. God sees our repentance. And are you ready for this? God evaluates our Repentance. Are you ready for this, brothers and sisters? God lets us know what our repentance is and what it is not. And that's an act of mercy. And that's an act of grace. When God reveals the shallowness of our repentance, it's not something to be offended at. It's something to thank God for. That the Spirit of God would work so deep within our hearts and souls as to show us the reality of our souls. So this is what's before us. True repentance was, a shallow shallow repentance was offered. True repentance was demanded. And sadly, true repentance was not found. Jeremiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Run ye to and fro, excuse me, run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof. If you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment and seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. 
And though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. It's one thing to have religion on our lips. It's another thing to have Christ in our soul, is it not? So true repentance was sought. True repentance was not found. Was not found, and therefore the word of warning was given. Now, what happens between verse between chapters five and, 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 and chapter nine is that you have the whole outworking now of God's judgment upon the nation, and what's happening in the kind of build up to the judgment upon the nation. You have individuals in the nation, individuals that we would probably have to say would be of the kind of upper strata of society of that day. You would have the wise. You would have the mighty. And you would have the rich. And while God is pronouncing judgment on the nation as a whole, he who knows the hearts understands that the wise think that by their wisdom they shall escape the judgment of God. The mighty think that by their might they shall escape the judgment of God. The rich think that by their riches they shall escape the judgment of God. And what God is saying by way of a word of warning is this. Do not boast in your riches, in your might, or in your wisdom. For those things will all fail you in the day of divine judgment. And that is what he says to people throughout the ages. That's what he says to people on that day. That's what he says to people on our day. And we know something of this, if I can put it to you this way. We know something of this. We know what, we, what goes through our minds when we hear of the potential of calamity coming. And what's the first thing that we often think of? Well, hopefully in our best days, the first thing we often think of is the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. But on our not-so-good days, what do we think of? Well, my bank account's doing okay. I'm young enough, I can still do this and that. You know, I'm a pretty smart guy, I can do this. I'm not speaking about myself. <laughs> you know, we're pretty smart guys, we can do this and that. And what we find is that we are boasting in ourselves. Now, this is a great, this is a great trap for humanity. And the reason why is because man as man is a wonderful creature. Man as man is an amazing creature. Man as man even has fallen has this very unique quality about him, which is called the image of God. I don't think I'm wrong when, I'm, when I say this. You may need to correct me on this. But I don't think I'm wrong when I say this. Only man is made in the image of God. While angels are called the sons of God, they are never said to be made in the image of God. There is something unique about man. Man is an amazing creature. Man, by way of his wisdom... Amazes us, doesn't he? By way of the accumulation of wealth and power, it's an amazing thing to see. We see individuals rise to the top sometimes like a rocket. And we think, what an amazing creature man is. I think one of the clearest passages in the scripture that speak to us about the amazing nature of this creature called man is in Genesis 11, verse 6 where you had the whole episode with the Tower of Babel. And you remember what, what, our, what, what, our, what, what God says in that passage of Scripture. And I just want to make sure that I, that I read it to you cor- correctly here. Genesis uh, 11, verse 6, the King James says this, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. The ESV says this, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and there is only and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That's man. That's fallen man. And so man looks upon himself and he says, you know what? I have wisdom. I have riches. I have might. And I almost hate to say it like this. The wise, the mighty, and the rich may think the judgment of God may come on those chumps over there, but it's not going to come on me. Man glorying in man. And what God warns us in this passage of Scripture is this. Let not man, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, the rich in his riches, the mighty in his might. Why? Because all these things will prove fruitless. It's the same God who says that the wisdom of man is, that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. It's the same God who says that he will confound the mighty by the weak. It's the same God who said to that rich man who would gather up in all, all of his stores and, all, and, and his bonds, what did he say? Thou fool, this night thy soul is required of thee. And so you see all these things really fall at the feet when everything really matters. We've all heard, we've all heard and seen the accounts of rich men at the, at, at the end of their life you know, uh, uh, realizing that their riches are nothing, all that they would do, one more thing for another day of health, riches failing them. The wise man, the wise man again, uh, again, seeing their wisdom fail or not having the power to enact what, what they know is, is the best thing by way of their wisdom. All these things failing. And what about the mighty man? The mighty man, if he lives long enough, will do everything he can or will have to do everything he can just to have the strength to take one more breath. Man is an amazing creature, but he's a creature still. And that's all he is. And that's why God gives this word of warning. Don't think that, that our wealth, that our riches, that our wisdom is going to avert the judgment of God. And we have to hear this not only as individuals, we have to hear this as a nation as well. Amen. Our wisdom... God is going to turn away his wrath from a people who will not repent and for a people who take pride in their wisdom and who by their wisdom reject God. A nation of wealth whose wealth can dry up in a moment. A nation of might whose might can all become as nothing. So this passage of scripture, let not the wise and the mighty and the rich glory. You see, it, it, is a, it is a rule of life. There's no two ways about it. But it has a context. And that context is especially the context of judgment. And don't think that the best of humanity is going to be able to escape it. Don't think that the best that you have is going to be able to escape the judgment of God apart from your embrace of Jesus Christ by faith. And so that's what we see here. And these things in and of themselves are not bad, are they? Wisdom, we thank God for wisdom. Riches, they're a blessing. Strength, a blessing of God. We thank God for these things. But as I said before, if they only plateau at man and don't proceed to God, they are things of this earth and things of the dust. So there's the warning that is given. But there's also a word of counsel given. And I think in a sense that that terminology, a word of counsel, may almost be a little too uh, weak to convey what God is conveying here in this passage of Scripture. 
Uh, again, the word of warning, let not the wise man, etc. The word of counsel, but let him that glories, glories in this. And I think there's a sense in which, I do want to use the, the phrase, the, the expression of word of counsel, but I think in one sense it's a little too weak because I don't think that God is merely giving counsel. I think that God is commanding something here. I think that God is giving a rule of life. And I do think that this passage of Scripture is taken up in the New Testament as a general rule of life. Let him the glories, glories in the Lord. I do think that without a doubt. And so what I want you to see here then is that God is giving counsel, yes, but it has a certain emphasis to it. And what he says in this passage of Scripture by way of a word of counsel or by way of a direction or a rule of life is essentially this. That the one who glories is to make his boast or his glory in the Lord himself. Now, we come to this idea of glory or boasting. It's one of those words that when we use it, a lot of times as Christians, we have a hard time letting the word pass over our lips. You know what I mean? Because, you know, boasting has such a negative connotation to it. Uh, and there's a sense in which we're, we, we're, we may be a little reserved in, in using that word. But the word boasting is, 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 is a fine word so long as it's used in its proper setting. Man is not to boast in himself. In many ways, we understand that man cannot boast in himself. But there is to be a genuine boasting in God. And what is this word boasting? What does it mean? Well, it means basically this, to take pleasure in. There is a sense in which the person is the boast, or a person, even by way of fallen man, will boast in those things in which he finds his security, and those things in which he finds his ability. But we know for the child of God, their security and their ability is in God himself. So the word boasting is not bad. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. And so as a Christian, I can say this to you by way of encouragement. Make your boast in the Lord. Amen. Let there be a settledness in your heart and soul that whatever else this world is and whatever else this world offers, it's nothing compared to God himself. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. <coughs> but what I want you to see particularly from this passage of Scripture, as I said before, it brings us back to our proposition. That the Christian is to make his or her boast in those things that God delights in. Now, why do I say this? I say this because of the way God himself kind of structures this passage of Scripture. And I do want you to observe something here. Did you notice at the beginning of verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, that very significant phrase that we find in the Bible. It, it's just, it, it occurs numerous times. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. And then if you look at the end of verse 24, we have the same expression. Saith the Lord. And what I want you to see in this passage of scripture then is that we don't necessarily have like just the words of Jeremiah. The Lord himself is speaking. This is God's personal counsel and personal direction to you and me. And so what God is saying is this. Let him that glories, and it's in one sense man is given to that. And God is saying, let him that glories, glories in this. That he knows and he understands me. That I am the Lord that works loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. How should we handle this? I want to suggest this to you. The way that we can handle this uh, 24th verse is along these lines. As I said before, we ought to glory in that which God delights in. And what God delights in, if you notice this passage of Scripture, is in one sense a twofold division. There is a twofold division. Number one, there is a delighting. And God making known his name. Did you see this? Let him boast in this. That he knows and understands the Lord. It's the revelation of God's name. And what we're going to see here just shortly is that God oftentimes reveals his name. 
And as I said before, he delights to reveal his name. And we'll come back to that. But the second thing that I want you to notice is this. Not only does he reveal his name, he reveals his nature. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. So I want you to consider these things with me. The first thing I want you to consider with me is God's delight in revealing his name. Now again, this is very significant. If you would go to uh, Exodus chapter 34, very well-known passage of scripture, Moses has that great longing to see the glory of God. You remember. That's a wonderful thing to see. And as a matter of fact, there's a sense in which Moses' desire to see the glory of God kind of is going to give us a little information as how we are to understand the two words, know and understand. Let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. Well, to know and understand God, among other things, is essentially this. You know that you have come to know and understand God, and this is, kind of, this is only a little bit of what we're about, or what we're going to say ultimately, but you know that you've come to know and understand God when your present knowledge of God is satisfying to you, but that your present knowledge of God leads you to, leads you to desire a greater knowledge of God. You understand? And we see this in Moses. Exodus 3, there's Moses at the burning bush. Who, who shall I say has sent me? And God gives, again, a revelation of his name. Say to them, I am, has sent me, has sent you. And that declaration of God's name, I am, is a declaration in one sense of his eternality of his self-sufficiency, of his own essential nature as independent of all things underived. In one sense, it is a great statement about the being of the Godhead of God, if I can put it that way, the self-existent one. But now when we come to Exodus 33 and 34, Moses desires to see more of God's glory. He desires a deeper knowledge of God. And what God does at that point then is he comes to Moses, you remember he hides him in the cleft of the rock, he passes by, and what does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, abundant in mercy and loving kindness. In Exodus 34, he reveals, or further reveals, I should say, because in Exodus 6, we see this as well, but he further reveals his name as Jehovah or Yahweh. And when God reveals his name as Jehovah or Yahweh, there is particularly an emphasis on his mercy and loving kindness. Notice again here what we see in Exodus 34. Just, you'll have to turn there with me. But Exodus 34, because there's a sense in which the, 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 the name of God is, is, is defined here for us by God. Exodus 34, verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. <clears throat> Let me say this. Isn't it wonderful that God repeats his name? God gives it by way of intensity. God wants to make sure that Moses knows what his name is. God delights to reveal his name. Again, verse, uh, verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. And here we go. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. And again, it goes on. Uh, you know how the passage... But let me, let me read it. Uh, for, uh, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of, upon the, of the fathers, upon the children, upon the children's children, and of the third and fourth generation. Well, now, we know normally stop there but look at verse 8 and Moses made haste 
and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When God reveals his name, the people of God bow down and worship. You see, God delights to reveal his name because he delights the response that it elicits in the hearts of his people. When God makes known his name, he's making something known by way of his character. That's what I want you to see here. And so when the scripture tells us, when God tells us that we are to glory in that which God delights in, we we are to glory in God's revealing of his name. Because in God's revealing of his name, he reveals his mercy. And God delights in his mercy. God loves to display his mercy. Didn't you hear it when God implored his people to repent and turn from their sins? Didn't you hear it when he, when he called them in the most tender way? And so we have here God revealing his name. But we also have God revealing his nature. And that was already brought out there in Exodus 34. But we have the three, we have the three aspects of God's nature set before us. His loving kindness, his justice, and his righteousness. Now I do find it somewhat interesting. I don't know that there's any significance to it, but I do find it somewhat interesting that we have the the triad of human uh, of human ability, and then we have the triune uh, excuse me the triad of, of God's perfections. And whenever we talk about God revealing His name and taking pleasure in that, taking delight in it, as I said, He delights to reveal His name, but He also He delights to reveal His name because in His name His character is revealed. He shows Himself as merciful. But he delights to reveal his nature as well. Do you know why? Because God delights in his own perfections. God who is loving. God who is merciful. God who is kind. God who forgives. He delights himself in his perfections. This is wonderful. God in his loving kindness showing himself to you and to me. Again, we can we can speak much about this word loving kindness. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to develop it. Although, really, the way that the sermon is laid out, it should be developed. But in that concept of loving kindness, one of, it's it's one of the most, if not the most, important Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word hased. It has the idea of God's covenant keeping faithfulness, of God's tenderness and God's compassion, of God's pity. Stop and think of what we've, what we've already come or what we've already dealt with here today. In Exodus 3, God is revealing himself in all those aspects of his august Godhead. In Exodus 34 and Jeremiah 9 and all of his compassion. And these two things are never separated. Again, you've, I think when I was here two weeks ago, we spoke about a perfection in the divine being and that there's a perfect harmony in all the attributes of God. And what we're seeing here is this. There is this augustness in his nature, but that augustness in his nature comes now to us by way of his mercy and compassion. And it's never diminished when it comes to us. It still remains God's loving kindness, God's mercy and compassion. What a wonderful thing to see. And so we are to glory in the very name of God. Why? Because God in his name delights to make that name known. We are to glory in the nature of God. Why? Because in the nature of God, we are delighting in the very perfections of God. I have to say something here. The name of God and the nature of God are most clearly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The name of God and the nature of God are most clearly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons why we can say what 
God himself delights in, we are to glory in. And when we delight in what God delights in, we delight in his son because God himself said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God delights in his son. Proverbs 8, he daily was my delight. This wonderful inner Trinitarian love, we're brought into it. Not again by way of ontology or by way of our own essential nature, but we're brought into the share of it. It's a wonderful thing to think. And so again, God, the Christian, is to make his boast in God, excuse me, the Christian is to make his boast in those things that God glories in. So we've seen God revealing his nature. We've seen God, excuse me, we've seen God revealing his name. We've seen God revealing his nature. But the third thing I want you to see here is really, it was placed first, but I want you to, we're going to consider it thirdly here. The third thing that I want you to see that God calls us to glory in is that we know and understand God. That we know and understand God. So God is calling us to glory in the knowledge of his name. God is calling us to glory in the knowledge of his nature. And God is now calling us to glory in our knowledge of him. Well, this knowledge that God calls us to glory in, what, what kind of a knowledge are we talking about here? I think most of us are aware, although we don't always think about it, you know, in, in, in the first moment, so to speak. I think most of us are aware that whenever the Bible uses the word know, it, it really never is stopping at the point of mere information. I think we know that. Uh, me and my wife were listening to a sermon last night, a lecture actually on one of the attributes of God, on the attributes of God, on the attribute of God's love. And... Um, uh, Steve Lawson was making the point uh, that the love of God is, 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 is never merely rational. I mean, it involves information, yes, but it's much more than that. And, and this knowledge that so oftentimes is spoken of in the scripture cannot be merely rational or cannot be merely informational. It's relational. And it's the very kind of knowledge that is spoken of when Adam knew his wife Eve. It's that very kind of relationship that's spoken of, of, of intimacy, and that relationship that, that reveals to us this knowledge that is much more than intellectual. It involves all the rationality, yes, but it's much more than that. And so when the scripture says, when God is saying, let him boast in this that he knows and understands me, he's not saying when you get your, you know, your, your master of divinity or your PhD in theology, you can boast. He's not saying that at all. I've said this to friends and the people. You don't get to heaven by passing a theology test. Now, you must have correct theology and a correct understanding about the nature of God. But that doesn't get you into heaven. It's an embrace of those things. It's a leaning on those things. It is that kind of knowledge that goes down into the soul. It's the very knowledge that Jesus Christ spoke about when he said, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Like Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, that ye know God, or rather are known by Him. You see this knowledge of God. And so here we are. As Paul said, as we read this morning, as Paul said, look among yourselves, brethren. Not many mighty, not many wise. Here we are. Just, just who and what we are, average people. God does save some of the mighty. He does save some of the wise. But for the most part, we see the people of God. We're a humble lot, aren't we? But we're a beloved lot. Maybe not much in the eyes of the world, but all esteemed in the eyes of Jesus Christ. I was speaking to a customer of mine today, uh, uh, this, this past week, 
he just lost his son, and I was just, just trying to convey to him something of God's compassion, God's love. And I said, look, God engraves us on the palm of his hands. Can a mother forget her child? She may forget, but I won't forget you, God says. And so again, all these things by way of the knowledge of God, what is it? It's not the rational and intellectual. Let me say this. Can I say this? I hope that you do. I hope that you have entered into the beautiful spiritual experience of worshiping God with your mind. Of having your knowledge of God deep, deep, deepened and widened. To sit there with the word of God and have something of God's nature come to you in a way that you've never seen it before. To submit all of your thinking to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To take up in every breath and every action, everything that the Lord calls us to in that prayer that he gave us. That in every step we would hallow the name of God. That in every step we would seek that his kingdom would be extended. Every step that his will would be done. Every step that we would know more and more of what it is to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And so again, what we see here is that we can glory humble humanity that we are, but we can boast in something. And by the grace of God, our souls will make their boast in the Lord. Our souls will boast in those things that God delights in. And he delights to reveal his name. He delights to reveal his nature, all bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And he delights when the people of God not only know him, but even more so are known by him. So that's what we have by way of this by way of this word of counsel. As I said before, a word of counsel is maybe a little too weak. This is a rule. This is the direction for living. And so as we come to the close of the sermon, what I want to leave you with are two things particularly. <coughs> Number one, I want to leave you with a use of this passage. And I would ask you to use this passage of Scripture as a mirror, to see, or excuse me, to use this passage of Scripture as a portrait of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in this passage of Scripture. Loving kindness, justice, and righteousness are all comprehended for us in Jesus Christ. The name of God is comprehended for us in Jesus Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know that that's an Old Testament passage of Scripture taken from the book of Isaiah when God says that every knee shall bow to him and every tongue shall confess him as Lord. It's all now taken up in the person of Jesus Christ. So use this passage of scripture as a portrait of Jesus Christ. But secondly, let me say this. If God himself delights in loving kindness and in justice and in righteousness, let us as the people of God delight in those same things as well. Let us as the people of God delight in showing loving kindness, to delight in showing justice, to doing right to not being satisfied when a wrong is done, but to do that which is right because it's right, because it glorifies God, because it expresses His nature. To see in the very righteousness that God requires of us that which is freely given to us through Jesus Christ. So a use of the passage, a portrait of Jesus Christ, an application of the passage in our daily walk that we too will exhibit loving kindness, and compassion. You know, some of us are kind of like hard-headed and hard-hearted by nature. And I do say some of us. Because you know, 
But we don't have to be that way, do we? We don't have to stay that way. Amen. We can exhibit that which God has worked in us. Amen. So Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Wonderful passage of scripture. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, nor the mighty in his strength. But let him that glories glories in this, that he knows and understands me, the Lord, who exercises. And let me say this one more thing. Who exercises loving kindness in the earth. Let me say this. The word loving kindness oftentimes has its primary context to Israel, to the covenant people of God. And there's a wonderful little kind of expression here that we should not lose sight of. Because while we would never want to do away with the particular, with the particular particularity of God's love, we must not fail to see the universality of God's love as well. You know, some of our theological systems emphasize the wideness of God's love. Some of our theological systems emphasize the deepness of God's love or the depth of God's love. Whenever we talk about the electing love of God, you're talking, that, that, that's the love of God described deeply. Whenever you talk about the love of God for the world, that's the love of God described broadly. And let me say this, when God himself says, for I exercise these things in the earth, aren't you glad? Because here we are, we're not in Israel. We're not national Israel. But we are that people in the earth to whom the loving kindness of God has come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God. Well, I have to say this and I have to ask you this. Where do you stand this day with this loving and kind God? You remember in the beginning of the sermon, he called us to genuine repentance, didn't he? We can't work that up on ourselves. Let us pray that God will reveal our hearts if there's a shallow repentance, may he reveal it. If there's a deep repentance, may, he, may we thank him for it. And at the end of our repenting, make sure that you come to the foot of Calvary because no repentance is complete apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. So you ask and you... You ask and you pray that God brings you to the cross to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you that you are this loving, kind, and gracious God who forgives iniquity, who pardons all of our sins, and who does it through Jesus Christ. And now, Father, what we ask and what we pray is this. You have given us bread in a famished land. Father, forbid that we should keep this bread to ourselves. But may we, Father, like those lepers of Old, of, of old Testament Israel of old, may we take this bread and give it to those who we come in contact with, that they too might know you as a God who exercises loving kindness in the earth. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.